Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome along to Football Digest Extra Time with myself, Ned Keating. I'm joined this morning by Sam Mee to run the rule over another busy weekend of Premier League action. Sam, unfortunately for me, as a Tottenham fan who, who did turn a big birthday at the weekend, big 3-0, I know if you're watching along, you'll be shocked as well. There's no grey hairs in sight. But it wasn't exactly the happiest birthday for me as a Tottenham fan. Uh, had to witness us losing 2-0 to Arsenal. Um, but we'll focus more on Arsenal than Tottenham because they are the big story at the minute. Doing so well in the Premier League, looking so comfortable at the top, extending their league to eight points as well. But we'll talk first about the performance yesterday from Arsenal and the way that they managed the game. And you you compare it to their previous trip to Tottenham last May, where it kind of all fell apart and it was typical Arsenal. You know, everything that was levelled at them in the past, having this soft underbelly, being easy to roll over. We saw that last May. We definitely didn't see that at the weekend at all, did we, Sam? It was almost roles reversed. Arsenal so comfortable, so dominant against Spurs. Probably didn't even have to get out of second gear, we were saying before we'd just come live this morning. Spurs the opposite, looking in disarray, probably struggling now to make the top four potentially. But for Arsenal, what a weekend and, and what a performance. Yeah, it was just never in doubt, was it? I mean, they obviously, the first goal was crucial in those games and then to get the second one before half-time was massive. Um, I mean, obviously, they they need to give Hugo Lloris a little bit of a high-five for their opener. But then Odegaard's second was just pure class. And after that, they just managed the game. And it's we, we haven't seen Arsenal manage games for years, even when they were were winning under, under Wenger. You have to go back well over a decade to see that. It was really, I know this is, sort of a bit of a barometer, but it was really Mourinho, Chelsea first time round, just went 2-0 up, shut up shop. I mean, like I said, we were talking off air and even in the second half, Spurs had that, you knew Spurs were going to have that 15 minute period between half time and the hour mark. And as long as Arsenal weathered that storm, you always felt like they would see it through, which they did. Um, and even though, you know, Ramsdale got a lot of plaudits, got man of the match, Tottenham had a lot of shots. There was never any period where you thought Arsenal was seriously under the cosh here. And if Tottenham get one, the stadium will come alive and, and and potentially we could have a game on. I think Arsenal managed the crowd well, but then at the end of the day, Tottenham are doing a good job of managing that crowd themselves at the moment. They're giving them nothing to shout about. And I think Arsenal probably knew that as soon as Arsenal got the opening goal and then obviously got their second, it was very much just manage the game. Like I mean, like you said off air, they probably could have got another one. Hugo Lloris did make a big save from Nketiah in the second half. And I think he's probably spared their blushes because at 2-0 it's bad. But if it had been 3 or 4, then... Yeah, I dread to think what will be going on the white half of North London today. Yeah, as depressing as it is for a Tottenham fan, I think it could have been anything Arsenal wanted it to be. I think they were, as, as we've you know, described it a few times already this morning, um, a very professional display from Arsenal in that knowing that at this stage the wins are more important and if you keep on winning and you keep on picking up the points, then the uh, then the goal difference column isn't going to come into play at the end of the season and we're not going to have to worry about beating Team 6 or 7-0 just to give us a nice edge on that one. But for Arsenal as well, and, and in this kind of this this quest for first title in 19 years, Gary Neville yesterday after the game on Sky Sports said that he still doesn't think Arsenal will win the title. He still thinks I think he even had him at third, didn't he? That that's that's the remarkable thing here. It's not a case of Man City will win the title. I think there's probably a few, um, you know, a lot of football fans that probably still think that that there's still a few twists and turns to come, and City maybe just maybe might click back into gear. But to have Arsenal finishing third below Man United, I think was was a, was was more bold than even saying that City would win the title. But on on that point, and looking at where Arsenal are going here, the trajectory that they're on, 
this weekend was a big ticking point for them, considering what happened last weekend at Spurs, a, a big kind of landmark kind of ticked off on that route to that first title in 19 years, potentially. They've got another big test coming up against Man United this weekend as well. But is it now a case of Arsenal of kind of, we almost expect them at this stage to beat the teams that are further down the table, you know, as, as, as we have done already this season, as they have done already this season, sorry. But is it now a case of in these bigger games, in, you know, places that they've not gone to and now they're winning there, you know, like Tottenham, their first win in a number of years at Tottenham. Um, it's now a case of that, isn't it, for Arsenal? So kind of there's certain checkpoints that they're going to hit now between now and the end of the season. It's just ticking them off one by one by one. Yeah, it was the sort of game that champions go and win. You had Tottenham, who on paper are a decent side, but they're out of form. They're in a bit of disarray. There's, you know, there's internal mumblings. Manager's not happy. Fans are frustrated. And that's the sort of game that, even though it's away, you just rock up and you do a job. And that's exactly what they did. So, I mean, I feel like at the start of the season, we definitely did have those checklists, didn't we? Whether it was Man United away, and then we had Chelsea away, or we had Tottenham at home. And it was every week it was they're like well can they pass this test and after they kept winning you do have to start to ask yourself how many times can we keep saying oh they've got to win this one to prove it so you know they are near enough for the real deal i mean to think that we were talking at the start of the season about whether they finished fourth looks, looks laughable now but it is very much they just seem so at ease with what they are i mean it, obviously we haven't got the amazon prime cameraman in this year but last year you looked at them and it seemed like they were playing on so much emotion. They obviously had that bad start to the season. And then it was all about proving people wrong. You know, I remember one scene, he got like a kit man in who'd been there for 30 years and he was talking about what it meant to him. You just get the sense there's none of that this year because they're just completely, they're just so, it's like cruise control. You can imagine they rock up at games and they don't have to G themselves up. They know what they are. They know what they're capable of and they just go out and perform. And at the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm just that they will, I, I can't see how there won't be a bump in the road, but in the same sense, when you watch them now, you just can't see, you can't see them dropping points. It's the big difference this year then, mentality. You know, you always talk about players and the rivals that come in and new signings, and there's no doubt that Gabriel Jesus and Alexander Sinchenko are phenomenal talents as well. Their playing abilities have definitely helped Arsenal this season. But... Ahead of the weekend's game, there was all this talk about what Sinchenko has been saying, or earlier this month it may have been as well, about that since Sinchenko's arrived, especially he's been saying to the players and, and his Arsenal teammates, we can win the title, we can win the title. They've now got two winners in this squad, two proven winners, two guys that have won so many trophies with Man City, know what it takes to get over the line and how to win these tight games and you know matches like probably Spurs yesterday, how to control them, to manage them. Is it more their mental aspect that, that Zinchenko and Jesus maybe have brought to this squad is more important than perhaps their playing ability. And again, that's not to, to downplay their abilities at all. They've been brilliant players for Arsenal and have, and have definitely added a lot to Arsenal's bows this season. But maybe you kind of think that it's more important of what they've brought upstairs mentally than perhaps what they can do with their feet on the pitch. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Arteta would have come in, wouldn't he, as a number, obviously, having been Pep's number two, and he would have been full of that winning experience. But I suppose he was very much like, he knew what it what it looked like from a coaching point of view. But it was translating that onto players, and you could argue he maybe didn't have a voice on the pitch that had that for him. And adding those two players, both of whom he knew, it's you can imagine him really relaying the messages through them. And it might not even be things they say. It might just be the way they've conducted themselves in training. I think it does make a big difference. But you also talk about like mentality. 
you know, you look back at Arsenal squad last year, the year before that. I think what people can overlook is that you look at players like your Sackers, your Martinelli's. Like Martinelli two years ago is not the same Martinelli he is today. Not only is he approved as a player, but as when he's so young, he's maturing at such a rapid rate as is Saka that they're obviously going to become greater leaders and they're going to have a greater influence. And I think that does go under the radar a little bit, um, how that's had an effect. And it is a bit of a cliche narrative, but the, the struggles they went through last year, it definitely does help you in terms of that upward trajectory. Very rarely do clubs just have a linear curve. You know, you do have to go through a couple of bumps in the road. Um, so I think that's definitely helped them. And yeah, they are looking, they are purring. Is it a case of Arsenal's title to lose now? I know it seems mad, you know, it, 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 it's such a strange season that we're in, that we're only 19 games through. So you're kind of thinking, oh, well, it's half the season's go. But then, you know, the kind of, the rest of you is thinking, well, it's January already. Like the, the the title race is well underway. Everyone is in the positions that they need to be in or want to be in in the Premier League or should be in. So it's that weird kind of anomaly that we've got this season that where the World Cup's come in, that you're kind of thinking, oh yeah, January, eight points clear. You should, you should see it home from here. And of course, look, if you're after 19 games, no matter what season it was, World Cup or not, I think if after 19 games, you're eight points clear, you'd expect to see it home as well. But do we see Arsenal seeing it out from here? You know, by the sounds of it and what you said already this morning, I think we're both on the same page here. I, I think it seems very difficult to see anyone else but Arsenal lifting the trophy. I'd say that that's firmly in pole position, but I think it, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's theirs to lose yet. I think it's far too much football to be played, and I think there's also the fact that City will hold on to the fact that they've got to play them twice, and if they win those games, it's only a draw for Arsenal and a win for City and then they're level again and the goal difference would probably be in City's favour you would imagine so I certainly don't think it's theirs to lose yet I think I mean look what they won 15 out of 18 games this year I think uh, drawn two lost one um, and oh, don't get me wrong you do off, you do sometimes get a relentless title winner whether you look at City Centurions or, or when Liverpool did it but it is rare that you do not have a slight blip and I think Arsenal will have a blip. I mean, even if you go back to their Invincibles year, I remember in 0304, they lost they lost in the FA Cup to Man United and they got dumped out of the Champions League to Chelsea probably within about a week, 10 days of each other. And people were there like, ooh. And I think they went and beat Liverpool at home in a proper statement win. Henri scored a hat-trick. And it sort of got their season almost back on track because you thought, could they throw this away? So it's certainly at the stage where, I mean, I speak to Arsenal fans at the moment and they say, even if we don't win the league, I'm still over the moon. Um, and I, which is, it goes to show how you manage expectations, doesn't it? Because I think a lot of them were, were looking for top four. I mean, I personally think it is still touch and go. Um, it's weird, isn't it? You know, you say like, you look at Arsenal, you think they probably have got have a, have a blip at some point. And you do look at City and you are waiting for them to win eight in a row because you just feel like that's, that's in them. So I think it'll be one of those times. I don't agree with Neville's uh, comments that May United are in the title race, which I think we, we might come on to in a minute. My only concern with Arsenal is that I was looking forward to him on air and I think seven of their players have started all 18 games. And I know Arteta has definitely played down any fears of burnout, which is his job at the end of the day. He's not going to sit there and say, yeah, Saka's knackered. Um, but fundamentally, when you play with such a small squad, that really is risky. And I know people said if they lose Jesus, they're in trouble and they've lost Jesus and nothing's really changed and Ketia has slotted in really, really well. But if, I don't know, if they were to lose a Saliba or a Party or Xhaka, um, I think maybe 
it would become difficult. And it also is underestimated as well. They obviously advanced in the Europa League. So everyone's favourite Thursday, Sunday, Thursday, Sunday turnaround potentially could play a factor as well. So he's definitely got manager's resources, which just puts a greater onus on their recruitment this month. Obviously, they've just missed out on uh, Madrid, who's gone to Chelsea. Um, and you do sense he definitely does want a few through the door. But when you're playing as well as they are, and they're so cohesive, and the group seems so harmonious, it, you do have to think about who you bring in. So there's definitely uh, a couple of things for them to think about this month. I was going to say just on on Mudrick as well. We we're going to come on to him there. Uh, Todd Bowley continuing to to someone once put it, uh, giving a full divorced dad kind of vibe in a way that he's trying to just buy things for the kids and and kind of keep them going, you know. And it, 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 the signings are just that. I think we all kind of have our own opinions about how Chelsea's transfer recruitment plan has gone. But with Arsenal missing out on him, a player that they've been linked with, you know, kind of seemingly in pole position, but she said they missed out. I think they need that kind of play. You know, Mudrick would have been seen as as kind of. Uh, uh, should Saka get an injury? You're talking there about players, about, you know, losing a Saliba or other players. I think Saka's the biggest fear for them because I can't see who slots in automatically in that position. Um, you know, if they lost Martin Lenny, perhaps maybe Smith Rowe can go and play there for a bit. You know, he's not got the same pace and the same qualities and stuff, but I feel they're, they're kind of more covered there. Um, so on on that point, I think, I think by the sounds of it, you're looking at the other, the other wing position. I'm looking at right wing. You're looking at left wing for where Arsenal maybe could do with reinforcements this January. But is that an, an important thing? You spoke there about managing resources, but is it now about managing financial resources and making sure that the players are brought in? But it's not just about the right ability at this stage, as you touched on it there. It's about also the right mentality, someone who isn't going to disrupt, who isn't going to upset the apple cart, who's going to come in, maybe not being a, an immediate starter because, you know, Arsenal, we, we, we know Arsenal's 11 now this season, you know, with, with the exception of Gabriel Jesus being injured at the minute, you could kind of name every other player who's going to start. So is that key as well, that this player has to probably accept that he's not going to be an immediate starter should he sign for the club? Yeah, I think that's the problem they've got. It's a bit like, almost, I mean, obviously with your team, it was like convincing someone, to, it was like convincing a striker to come to Tottenham when you knew you'd play second fiddle with Harry Kane. It's, it's a tough sell to players. But I think Arsenal, they've obviously earned huge praise for their recruitment for the last sort of two windows, um, and rightfully so. And I think they are conscious that they've been burned before, whether you look at like, you know, they went out and spent big money on Pepe, and it's just not worked. They give big wages to Aubameyang, and he completely turns. And you can go back as far as Ozil. So I think they are really determined to get it right. And I actually got to be honest, I think fair play to them, like to spend Chelsea just spent 89 million on, I mean, I'm not being funny. How many casual viewers will actually sit there and say they know what Madrid has, have they ever watched him play? Like they might've seen him in a Champions League game or, or a Europa League game, but he is something of an unknown quantity. And that is a huge amount of money to spend on him. So I've got to be honest, credit to Arsenal for sort of sit there and going, this is where we value you, the player at. And if we can't strike a deal, we're happy to walk away. I think that's a really good place to be. It, I think Chelsea, I mean, there's no getting around it. Chelsea's transfer policy does wreak a little bit of desperation. It's just, it's like, I mean, Neville said to me, he's like he's playing football manager and he is a little bit. Whereas with Arsenal, they're obviously prepared to walk away, which is to their credit. You just hope it doesn't come back to bite them because they do need to get a player in. But then in the same sense, why would you, if you're a title winning side or potentially a title winning side going into the Champions League next year, you Aren't, I don't think you should be looking to sign someone who is clearly going to be your second best left winger. Like sign someone who Saka really has to raise his game to stay in front of would be sort of my suggestion on that one. But as we all know, January is a horrible time to get your recruitment done. So best of luck to Eddie on that one. 
I, I think as well with uh, with a World Cup just after it, prices are definitely a little bit more inflated than even before in a in a January transfer window. Sam, we're going to come on to Man United now. Um, they they did Arsenal a massive favour really at the weekend, um, beating Man City on on Saturday to allow Arsenal then that opportunity to go and beat Spurs and, and move eight points clear at the top. But United themselves, we touched on it a little bit, and I think I'm going to know your opinions on this one in a second. But United themselves seem to have, you know, looking at the kind of reaction to to, to Saturday's win, seem to have forced themselves back into perhaps the title uh, the title race as well. Um, Fourth at the minute behind Newcastle as well. So I suppose if we're including Man United in this debate, we might have to include Newcastle as well for sure. Phenomenal season. They're having a great season from Eddie Howe. But I think you're about to dampen any Man United fans that are listening, dampen any hope that they've got here and say that categorically they should probably lower their expectations and that they probably shouldn't expect themselves to be in the title race, judging by what you said earlier on the show. I've got to be honest. Yeah, I don't think they have. I think... Look, the turnaround's been massive, especially after those first two games, the Brighton game and the Brentford game. I mean, you, it was, for, for anyone who's not a Man United fan, it was comical. Um, and obviously, they must have been sat there going, are we, are we doing this again? But Ten Hag's really, really impressing a lot of people, and rightfully so. But I think they've had some generous fixtures. I don't think that, I think if you look at either side of the World Cup, they've won six out of seven games um, with their only loss coming to Aston Villa. And I think six of those teams, of the six, four are in like a relegation scrap. I think they've beaten West Ham, they've beaten Bournemouth, they've beaten Forest and Wolves. Um, and even that result at Villa when they lost, I think it was when they lost 3-1, you still feel like they've got that in them. When I saw that result, it doesn't shock you like it does like with a City, for example. They still have got a blunder in them, even though... They've massively, massively improved. But like I said, you know, the form column looks good. I think that is partly down to the fixtures, but that was a massive statement win on on Saturday. I'm sure we'll come into come on to the first goal, which was a, a slight factor in that. Um, but they are very, very much on the rise. And I think one player who's been massive, who I would give a shout out to is Casemiro. Just an absolutely brilliant signing. I know a lot was made about the wages, his age, how long the contract was. But I mean, when you look at that Real Madrid side he was in, Whenever you look at teams who are that good and have that many stars, you always wonder which ones are the real deal. Because you always think, oh, if, if they pulled him out, would it make a difference? If they pulled him out, would it make a difference? If he went somewhere else, would he look as good? And he's come in and God, is he a good... I mean, we all knew he was a good player, but I think he's just aging like a fine wine. Um, I mean, he's obviously... He's reveled in the dark arts of the game before, but just the impact he seems to have had in that dressing room. Just that know-how of winning, which is a bit what we touched upon with Arsenal. Not a huge amount of those players. Obviously, Man United's last trophy was when Mourinho was there. So we're talking five, you know, around six years now since they won a trophy. So I think that know-how that he's brought has been massive. But I think it's a year early. I think next year, if they get their recruitment right, then, yeah, they seriously could be back. But I think this year it's probably still a bit early. You mentioned there uh, about obviously Man United's first goal and unlike the cast of Encanto, we are going to talk about Bruno this morning. That was tenuous, wasn't it? Maybe I should uh, cut that one out when it comes to the editing process because I feel grim having already said it. Um, but that goal, um, Man City were leading 1-0 at that point through Jack Grealish. Um, in a derby, you're kind of thinking, you know, kind of on a knife edge, almost 10 minutes remaining in the game at that point. You're kind of thinking, what way is it going to go? Is there going to be twists and turns? And by, by golly, well, there was a big turn, wasn't there? 
how on earth, for anyone that's not watched it, uh, Casemiro, wasn't it, that played the lovely ball through as well. There we are talking about him. And it was a great ball. Rashford times he's run a little bit better. Um, Rashford looks for all, all and sundry that he is offside, but because he doesn't touch the ball, despite the fact that he's shielding it and doing a phenomenal job of shielding it, and basically, I don't know how you can say he wasn't interfering with play, but apparently he wasn't. And then obviously Bruno Fernandes, great finish. How? How? How, how is that a goal? Like, I... I, I Cannot fathom. Like we can discuss whether or not the rules and the interpretation of the rules and whatnot. Um, you know, for 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 days and days and days. But I I don't know how you can come to the assumption that Marcus Rashford in that point at that position, regardless of the fact whether or not he touches the ball or not, was not interfering with play. I just it's it's mind boggling. Oh, it's horrific. It's it, it's got to go down as the worst decision of the year. The worst part was, and you just couldn't write it. And Howard Webb. Bless him, obviously, head of the old PGMOL these days. I mean, to think that that happens at, what, half one and then sort of four-ish down at the Amex, there's a decision given against Trent Alexander-Arnold, which is literally the exact same interpretation of the rule, and it's a different interpretation. You just couldn't write it. I mean, like I said, the law needs a lot of re- a lot of uh, looking at. It's just They've obviously brought it forward a lot in the last sort of like 20 years, which is the right thing. But they do need to seriously have another look at it. If they think that is a goal, it's just shocking. And I thought I saw, I think it was Peter Check did a tweet and he was like, the people who write the rules have never played the game. And it's so true. It's just there's several aspects of that offside rule that they need to look at. I mean, if we're going to digress for a minute, one thing that I can't, I can't get my head around, you see it all the time, is you'll see a player cross it for his forward. It'll do a diagonal. And the defender's got his eyes on the ball and the attacker's behind him. The attacker's gone early and the defender will go to try and get ahead of to clear it. And as soon as he heads it, he plays him on side. And it's like, well, he wasn't affecting play. And it's like, well, the defender wouldn't have had to clear it if he wasn't there. So, of course, he's affecting play. It's no different to the Rashford goal, you know. A Kanji would just run and play it back to Edison or Edison would just come and get it if Rashford wasn't there. It's just, yeah, it's an absolute farce. And I mean, refereeing in this country hasn't got a great rep at the moment and they are doing themselves no favours. But, you know, Man United won't care. It doesn't, I mean, we haven't, obviously, now that the uh, days of uh, Fergie have gone and the old referee and intimidation, obviously we don't need to get into that. Man United haven't had like a real decision where you go, oh, it's a Man United decision, a bit of of favouring them. But uh yeah, this is not a, not a great look. But like I said, they won't care. Makes the league a bit more interesting. You know, Neville's loving it. Um, it's definitely shone a light on a couple of things city-wise, um, which obviously, you know, we're not really going to discuss today, but it seems to have dented their charge, dented their sort of that aura of invincibility they had at the start of the year when Harlan was banging them in. And obviously it gives Man United a massive dose of momentum. So, uh, yeah, watch the space going forward. But there's some serious questions to answer for the old referees. Indeed, indeed, and and the one thing then you touched upon it upon the decisions that you have. One thing, I, I mean, I'm about to probably contradict myself here, but you just want kind of consistency, and I know it's hard between different referees, different referee games differently. Um, or if I can get my words out, maybe this morning. Um, but you just want consistency, and when you have that, and like you said, there in such a short space of time, um, doesn't matter which two teams were involved in in those two decisions that day, you just want some consistency and and kind of some black and white. Um, in, in terms of the laws and the interpretation. 
Sam, just finally on United this morning, you touched a bit on it a little bit earlier about the mentality that they've got and the kind of um, what Casemiro has brought to the team, similar perhaps to what Zinchenko and Jesus have brought to Arsenal. But equally, do they share another big trait in Arsenal in that now, especially after Cristiano Ronaldo, that whole interview, and he has left the club, that there seems to be a real kind of unity in the Man United squad, in the camp, likewise with Arsenal as well. There's, there seems to be a real togetherness in these two teams that we maybe haven't seen, you know, these these kind of two fallen giants, I think we can kind of describe them as, given how long it has been since they won, you know, top honours and, and Premier League titles and, and whatnot. But now they seem to have this unity that they are together as a team moving forward as one. And, and that seems to be really helping them at this point. Yeah, I mean, you touched on that. I was actually having this conversation with a friend of mine yesterday. It does nothing for the for the narrative of uh, Ronaldo's sort of legacy. I mean, you know, he's, he's supposedly... <laughs> I mean, let's not get into the GOAT debate. Um, he's certainly not mine, but it doesn't do wonders for his legacy when he leaves the team and you look at how good they suddenly become. Um, yeah, they're in a really good place. I think the manager has to take massive credit for that. I think he, the way he conducts himself in, in interviews and with the media is brilliant. It's quite cold, but he's very much like, he doesn't. he has no interest in playing the game. He's very much just he will do what is best for his team. Um, gives very, very little away. I think he shoulders a lot of the responsibility as well, which makes it a lot easier for the players. You only have to look at, you know, you look at players like Rashford, how much he's come on. And I think Ten Hag has to take a lot of credit for that. Obviously, Rashford himself did some brilliant bits in pre-season to get himself ready. But I think just the whole club at the moment is just so different. And I think one thing that's really telling is that if you look at fringe players, players who you think in other tenures there'd be real noises about it. You know, he's dropped Maguire, the club captain, for a new signing. And you never hear anything about it. I feel like in in any other tenure, you know, Maguire would be kicking off, or if he wasn't kicking off, there'd be stories being fed out that he was kicking off. Um, you know, you look at, I remember uh, some of the inquests that used to happen after Solskjaer defeats and players, whether it was, you know, Eric Bailly and all that sort of stuff. And you have this idea that Solskjaer has his favourites and Ten Hag obviously does as well. But the way he manages it is just brilliant. It seems like a really harmonious group. Everyone is bought into this sort of resurgence of Man United. And yeah, it's... uh, I think once they get that aspect of it right, it will become a lot easier because even over the years, whilst they've not delivered, they've had good players and it's just been on a manager to make them click and get every player playing to their full potential. And Ten Hag really is doing that. Sam, just finally this morning, before we go, we're going to touch on Liverpool. We've spoken about two teams on upward trajectories this morning in Arsenal and Man United, but one definitely on a, on a downward kind of slope at the minute. Um, they're, they're just falling down the Premier League table. They're falling away from the race for the top four. What on earth is going on for Liverpool at the minute under Jurgen Klopp? Yeah, it's not a good place to be, is it? Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? You wonder, is it potentially a hangover from last year? You know, they, they go for the quadruple. They become the first team in absolutely years. I think it was since a Liverpool team in the 70s or 80s to play in every single game in a season, having reached all the finals. Um, and they, you know, they win two out of four, but they missed out on the two that they really wanted. And I think that definitely has an impact. Um People have spoken about this Jurgen Klopp seven-year itch at Mainz and Dortmund about how things started to really decline. I'm not sure there's too much in that myself. I think it's just sort of ironic timing. But uh, they've certainly turned a blind eye to their recruitment. I mean, that was for one time sort of what they were held up as a sort of Europe standard bearer for recruitment. But the decline has been massive. And I think they've almost 
sort of rode that reputation for a while and suddenly people are there like do you know what maybe they're not that good at recruitment and it was just this this, this phase i mean obviously michael edwards has left which is a massive deal and obviously the man who came in to replace him julian wood has also now announced he's leaving so i think there's a lack of continuity there but they very much for a long time have stuck to the ethos i think of it worked last year so it will work this year i think I don't know how much evolution there has been in Liverpool myself. And I think that's potentially what it is. They're still the thing with when you have the players they have and you know, you play with the intensity or the intensity they used to play with. They obviously have still got that in them, but they I don't think they can just hit that level on a weekly basis like they were doing. So um, it is certainly a transition period. And the issue for them is that if they miss out on the Champions League, it becomes very hard to recruit players. Um, and with so many other teams seemingly on the rise, uh, yeah, it's definitely, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. In terms of recruitment then, do they need midfielders in January? I think that kind of looks like their biggest area of concern at the minute, not just in terms of how they're playing and, and the style of football they're playing and the form that the players are in, but equally, I think I saw a, a telling tweet about it last night in that there are so many of that current crop of midfielders that they have that are out of contract in the summer. And if they're not out of contract, they're unfortunately the wrong side of 30 to be playing in a Jurgen Klopp style of football. So is that where Liverpool need something to happen this window, that they need to bring in some player to bolster their midfield options, really? Yeah, massively. I mean, I spoke. I actually spoke to someone about this the other day, about how they obviously back in 2017, they chose to wait for Van Dijk in that summer when they didn't get him and when they got him in the January. And that was seen as, you know, this is why you're patient in the transfer market. And... I feel like they're holding on to that a little bit too much. You know, they didn't, uh, you know, by all accounts, they wanted Bellingham in the summer, but they couldn't afford him. But you can't just write off a year. You have to go and get, there has to be other players on your shortlist. So they absolutely need another midfielder. But the issue now is who do they get? And I think they are in the position now where they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't, because they won't get the caliber of player they want unless they pull an absolute rabbit out of the hat recruitment wise, which is feasible. But if they get a player who's subpar people will sit there and go why have you spent x amount of million on a player who potentially is just going to be moved on in 18 months or or two years you know you were just being reactive because of the bad form and then if they don't sign a player and this continues people will sit there and they go how did you not sign a player in january so they are damned if they do they're damned if they don't i think the problem they've got at the moment is i mean for jürgen could hear me say this he'd be kicking off because he loves to take on the press but there was this narrative, especially around that sort of like 18, 19, 20 period, where for how brilliant they were, once every two or three months, a team would sit back and they wouldn't be able to break them down and people would be there like, oh, they miss Coutinho, they miss that Coutinho type player, that technical player. And I think they tried to go and get that in in Thiago. And then, whether you, you know, you look at Harvey Elliott and Fabio Carvalho since then, they're quite technical players. They've gone away from that sort of Wijnaldum player who they signed way back when and I think that is potentially the route they need to go back down to you know don't bow to public pressure the midfielders have always served a purpose at Liverpool they've never been electric you know their attack stems from their fullbacks and then it was just feed the front three Um, and I think they probably do need to get back to that if they want to because Klopp is not going to rewrite his whole philosophy he needs to go back to basics really but like you said the question is who do they get because they don't get Bellingham Part of me thought for a period Declan Rice will be on the move this summer and would they move for him? Obviously, there'd be a lot of competition for him. But then thinking on it, would he actually solve the problem? 
So I think their recruitment department have definitely got uh, a job on their hands to to go and find that that really energetic Wijnaldum-like player um, if they are going to get back to to winning ways. Sam, thanks for joining us this morning. That just about wraps it up there here on the Football Digest Extra Time. Uh, pleasure to have Sam on with us today to, to go through what was another busy Premier League weekend. Of course, as ever, you can stay up to date with all the latest news uh, from the January transfer window and beyond uh, on Reach's national titles on the Daily Mirror, Daily Star and Daily Express. But for now, it's goodbye. Goodbye.